Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. The passage today comes from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the associate pastor here. And we are in the middle of our uh, summer psalm series, which we're looking at different psalms um, uh, from the Bible. And so if you are ha- have your Bible or you just want to follow along, we want to walk uh, through this particular song. But before I get to the Psalm 51, you have to ask the question, why is this psalm in the Bible? And I think there's a multitude of reasons why it's there. And the very first one is it's a response to something that happened. We know that because at the opening of the psalm, it says this, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came uh, to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. If you don't know that story, you can find it in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it, it kind of goes like this. Uh, uh, David uh, uh, becomes king, and when he becomes king, it's not yet a, a united kingdom, and so every so often he has to send the army out uh, to put a rebellion down or to protect a part of the kingdom, and so he sends his army out, and one of his uh, closest um, uh, leaders is a guy named Uriah who's newly uh, married and and she there 
home is near uh, the king's palace. The king usually goes to battle. Even if he's not in the battle, he's usually near it. But he's not. He's at home at his palace. And, and the way it works is that the palace of the king is taller and more uh, grand than everyone else's. And so his rooftop is higher than everybody else's rooftop. And he looks from his rooftop one day and he sees his friend's wife who happens to be very beautiful and uh, sends a messenger to her to come to him and he has an illicit affair with her now in today's world we would say there are some power dynamic boundaries that he has uh, transgressed she is the wife of a military guy um, he, she is younger, uh, she is vulnerable because he is away, and the king summons you like she had much of a choice. We don't know much more than that. We just know that they have uh, an affair uh, that results in her uh, getting pregnant while Uriah is uh, fighting a battle for the king. And so uh, Uriah comes home on furlough, yeah, evidently this fighting is quite long and so he comes home for a few days and uh, so David doesn't want him to find out that he's gotten his uh, wife pregnant and so he says Uriah why don't you uh, take a few days off and visit your wife and he says can't do that my men are in the battle I can't can't do that and he says hey take a night and before you go back and he sleeps on the porch and doesn't really uh, have relations with his wife and so David has to come up with plan B to hide his affair. And plan B is to send a message with Uriah uh, to the general at battle and say, hey, send Uriah out, let him get in the front of the battle, and then at the right moment, I want you to pull all the troops back and leave him exposed so that he will die. And that's exactly what happens to Uriah. It's uh, kind of a premeditated murder. He didn't do it himself, but he may orchestrated uh, the events so that Uriah would die, um, and so Bathsheba would become free. Nathan, who is the prophet, and we don't know how Nathan finds out. We just know he does. It could have been supernatural. God could have told Nathan. It could have been natural in the sense of uh, Nathan's there in town, and the rumors have already started. And so he goes up, and rather than... Uh, saying, hey, David, uh, I know you've done wrong, and let me tell you, you need to repent. And instead of that, he says, let me tell you a story, David. And you know you're in trouble when a friend comes up to you and says, let me tell you a story. And he says, uh, what if uh, one of the farmers who had uh, hundreds and thousands of sheep and his neighbor to him has only one cool sheep and the one that has many sheep uh, takes the sheep, the one sheep from his neighbor, how would you feel about that? And, and so David says in righteous indignation, oh, we should, we should kill him. Uh, we should uh, take vengeance on him. It would be the just thing. And so Nathan says, but it's you. And that's when David crumbles under the weight of what he has done. And Psalm 51 is David's own repentance, this, the words of his repentance to what he had done. So in one answer to the question, Psalm 51 is in response to what David had done in repentance. And that's why we have it. But there's another reason I think we have it. And that is that the Bible is incredibly honest about the characters that it talks about. 
that is in most religious literature, in most uh, 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 literature in general, when you talk about a hero, you don't talk about their failures. You only talk about their successes. You, you build them up. You avoid the fact that at some point he falls. And so one thing that helps us when we read Psalm 51 is not only that it is a response to what David has done, but it also tells us that we can trust what is being said because it's being honest. Because if you or I were writing our own biographies, we might skip this section and go right on to Psalm 52. But the reality is the Bible wants us to understand that the Bible's heroes are just like us. And that's why we can trust it, because God will tell us the whole story about the heroes. But there is a third reason, and I think that's what I want us to think about. And I wish I had heard this when I first became a Christian, but didn't. It took many years for me to hear what we're going to talk about. And that is Psalm 51 gives us a paradigm for living. It's not just, this is what David did, and therefore let's copy David. David knows and has the secret to life, particularly life as a follower of Jesus. And it's an illustration and a demonstration of something that Jesus says in Mark 1. When Jesus begins his ministry in Mark 1, he says, I have come to preach that the kingdom of God has come. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Come and follow me. And so what I want to do is give us that paradigm because many people believe if you ask them what's the Christian life all about they will say the Christian life is about an ethical standard that is there is a way to live and there's do's and don'ts and if you if you follow those if you obey those then you have a good life other people think that's a set of beliefs in which you assent to that let me tell you the 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 apostles creed let me give you the the Westminster confession of faith let me give you the Nicene Creed and all of these things if you just believe that that's what it means to be a Christian and third still others think that it's a set of experiences for you to have that if you're a Christian you have this experience and then you have this experience and then you have this experience and the truth is it's all of those things it's an ethical standard. It's a, it's, a, it's a set of beliefs. And it is a set of experiences to have. But it's so much more than that. We want to reduce and minimize everything so that we can get our mind around it. And one of the ways we do that with Christianity is if I can just do the right things, if I can believe the right things, if I can have the right experiences, then I am living a good Christian life. But Psalm 51 comes along and smashes all of that and says it's more and it's deeper than an ethical standard. It's more and deeper than a set of beliefs. It's more and deeper than a set of experiences that you can have. Psalm 51 reveals that life of faith as a Christian is a beautiful dance. Now, those of you are already feeling uncomfortable because you can't dance. Well, I got news for you. I can't either. It's, it's so funny. When I first got married, uh, the very first thing my wife thought was a good thing 
was to sign us up for dance lessons. Not because she needed them, because she thought I needed them. My favorite part of that evaluation is at the end. She said, you are hopeless. It's, it's the reason you never see me clap a beat. I can't hear it. It's, it's like she says, well, can't you just feel it? No, I can't feel it. And so I'm going to talk about a dance that is different than what you do with your feet. It's what you do with your heart. And therefore, it's a beautiful dance of grace. I have a friend who calls this a waltz. He calls it a waltz because it has three steps to it. And the first step of that is simply to repent. The second is to believe. And the third is to follow. It follows along Mark 1, uh, 15 and 17, where Jesus says, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Come and follow me. This psalm can be laid out under those three big ideas. Repent, believe, and follow. And so let's look at those. First, repent. Listen to David as he opens this psalm in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. That word transgression means that I have crossed the line. That there is a line in relationship that God has left for us to have a relationship with him. And we're constantly stepping over that line. In the New Testament, they use this word. It's a very small word, and it's the word sin. And we today are so uncomfortable with that word, but that word simply means missing the mark. That is that God has a singular standard. Be like me. Sometimes he'll say it this way, be holy for I am holy. In other places it'll be translated, be perfect for I am perfect. In other ways he'll say, uh, uh, be righteous for I am righteous. And we, we hear that and we say, oh, there's that ethical standard that we were just talking about. Yes. And his standard is perfection. And a transgression is here is the standard, and I transgress over it. I move over it. I step over it. He goes on and he says, Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He's using these interchangeably. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What is David doing here? He's repenting. That's the English word for what is going on here. To repent. Well, what does that mean? To repent means to change a direction. It is to turn back from where you are going. It means to change your mind. You see, that's one of the reasons why the Bible says that God is not a man, that he should have to what? Repent. God doesn't need to change his mind. We do. The truth is, no one's really good at this. No one repents well. My experience is that we all need help to repent because we do it so poorly. Somebody needs to come along and walk alongside us and say, okay, here's how to repent well in this situation. Also, repentance is 
not a moment in time. It's not a decision. It's not a simply a turn, but it's a progression. Most people think that a repentance is just, you do this one thing and you're done. The reality is it's a long road, often bumpy, often where we fall off and have to get back up on the road of repentance. The temptation for Christians, I'm not talking to people outside the church here yet, is for us to minimize repentance, to make it smaller, manageable. One way we do that, and you see it in our culture, and we've brought it into the church, is all that you have to do is say, I'm sorry. For what? We can be nebulous. We can say, I've, I, I have uh, crossed boundaries. I have made a mistake. I have erred. That's kind of how our culture, and so that's coming to the church. And instead of repenting, as the Bible talks about repentance, we uh, adopt the cultures. And so all I have to say is, I'm sorry. Repentance is more complicated than that. And actually, it has five parts. Oh, I don't like that. You just made it more complicated. No, the Bible did. Because it, for it to be thorough, to truly change us, these all are present. The first is simply a confession. We confess what we have done. Not in a general sense, but in a specific sense. You know, sometimes we'll do it this way, and you, and you hear couples do this often. I'm sorry if I hurt you. What is that? <laughs> If I hurt you, obviously I hurt you. Why not say, I hurt you? What I said, I had no idea, or maybe you did, that it was going to hurt you. And so confession is the beginning of repentance. It's not the whole thing. Look at David. He not only confesses, this is the second one, he takes ownership. Notice how many times he uses first person. I, me. My, he says, uh, my transgressions, my sin, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so part of repentance is taking ownership for what we've done. And you, you often see that when couples or people in relationship with one another have to confess. If we keep it general, then we never have to really deal with it. It's only when we say, you know, I did do that, and I'm sorry. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Now, I'm going to give you three more parts, but they're all fruits of repentance, not just repent, steps of repentance. And the first fruit is to make amends. That is, if I stole something from you, and I'm truly sorry for doing it, I need to do something about what I stole. Either return it or pay for it. You make amends. We miss that so much. Often in the Bible, more than jail time, it's about making amends. It's a fruit of, the, of repentance. To truly be sorry, to truly uh, to think that I have done you wrong, 
I want to make that up to you. What can I do? And this is, this is also a struggle for us because we want to dictate those terms. If I do enough of the right thing, if I, if I go far enough in making up to you, well, then you must forgive me. That's not how it works. What can I do to make this up to you and allow the other person, the offended party, to dictate the terms of what it means to make amends? Because that, my friend, takes humility and vulnerability, and we don't like that. So we don't ask. Two more. And these are the two we want to get to. But you have to go through the first three before you get to this, the last two. The first one is reconciliation. But you can't control that. That takes two people. That takes the confession, the repentance, and the forgiveness for to, there to be reconciliation. I've heard people say, well, she has to reconcile with me. She's a Christian. Do you want a reconciliation that way? By force? Or by the heart that changes, which also takes time. The last one is this whole idea about restoration of the relationship. That does not mean, hear me, restoration does not mean that the relationship goes exactly back to where it was before the brokenness. It might be in a very different place than where you started. And David's a perfect example. David, when he confesses, he built his palace, and then he says, you know what, God, you deserve a better palace than me called a temple, and I'm going to build that. And God says, no, yes, you're still king, but you're not going to build my temple. You're going to collect everything that's needed, but your son's going to do that. It's not called David's temple. It's called Solomon's temple. All right. Now, here's, here's the phrase I want you to remember. Jack Miller, who was a wonderful preacher in Philadelphia, he's been dead for a while now, but I, I often heard this statement from, from him or his writing. Jack Miller would say, cheer up, you're worse than you think. Hold on, there's good news coming. But if we don't cheer up over the fact that I am worse than I think, then I won't appreciate the gospel that's coming. Bruce, how is that supposed to be encouraging? The truth is, the more you understand grace, the more you can understand the seriousness of our sins. The more you will repent, and the more you will look for more grace. Don't you see? It is a circle. The more you understand grace, the more you can see your sin. The more you can see your sin, the more you will want grace. That's the way it works. Grace will never be precious to us if we think we don't need it. If we don't believe we need desperately God's grace, we won't seek it. And it'll never be precious to us. God graciously, tenderly, progressively exposes us to our sin. Why? To make us feel bad? No. So that we would turn back to him. God's goal has always been that his people would turn back to him. He is a pursuing God. He is after your heart. Unfortunately, we do get discouraged when we look at our sins. When our sins are exposed to others, 
when they're exposed to us, we get discouraged. Many will beat themselves up. Why? Because there is an alternative dance to the dance of grace. And it's called the dance of performance. It's a two-step instead of a three. I'm going to try harder so that God will love me more. And when I feel like I have done poorly, I will try even harder and harder and harder. And that will do one of two things to a human heart. Your trial to get God's love for you will either make you an incredible legalist, perfectionist, be like me, I've got it together, or it will burn you out and you will walk away. Those are the two roads that the performance leads. Either to burnout or you actually think you've got it. You actually think that this dance is the dance. Brennan Manning wrote a little book. It's easy to read. It's called The Ragamuffin Gospel. He said this, The temptation of our age is to look good while being, without being good. To look good without really being good. If we just trust to get our act together, God will like me. The truth is, no matter how good we try to be, it will never be good enough. Do you remember what I said the standard was? Be perfect for I am perfect. Be holy for I am holy. There's not a human being other than Jesus Christ who is both divine and human has ever been perfect forever will be in this life what discourages us most is that we know whatever's wrong with us whatever we are able to see whatever we're able to admit about ourselves it is just the tip of the iceberg which is why jack miller will say cheer up you're worse than you think he exposes us to heal us not to discourage us Here's Paul Tripp in his book, Whiter Than Snow. He says, here is the beautiful message of the gospel, even though I have bowed again and again to an endless catalog of God replacements, even though I have loved myself more than I have loved God, even though I have rebelled against God's kingdom and sought to set up my own, God comes to me in grace and wraps his arms of love around me and begins a process that will result in the total transformation of the core of my personhood my heart which brings us to the second step the second step is to believe believe what listen listen again to david what he believes god could do for him cleanse me verse 7 with a hyssop and i will be clean wash me and i'll be whiter than snow let me hear joy and gladness let the bones you have crushed rejoice hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David believed in the gospel of forgiveness. That no matter what he had done, that what he had incredibly done to Bathsheba and her reputation and to Uriah and to God, it was not beyond God's ability to forgive. We tend to think there are lines and that if you cross that line, then there can be no forgiveness. The truth is, that's untrue. There's nothing you can do in this life that God can't forgive and bring you home. 
That's why Jack Miller not only says, cheer up, you're worse than you think, but he also says, cheer up, for the gospel is better than you can even imagine. It's not enough to see your sin. It's like looking into the sun unaided. You can't do that for very long. It's just too painful. We need the glasses of forgiveness to look at our sin. He has made a way for you and I to be clean again. Where our sins are blotted out. No matter how much God reveals of the iceberg, His grace is sufficient to cover. This makes sin a strange window to joy. The more we know our sin, the bigger His grace is that we need to cover So those of you who think that you can run far enough from your sin, that it can be hidden long enough, then you are not just diminishing your sin, but you're dismissing his grace that is necessary to cover. You know you're not dancing the dance of grace when you think God will treat you as your sins deserve. The gospel is not that God treats you as you deserve. The gospel is that God treats Jesus as you sins deserve. So that you might be free and forgiven. Grace is only sweet when we realize because of Christ, God will not treat you as your sins deserve. That's called grace. Jesus came to forgive our sins and to free us from the power of sin over us. Jesus works to remove shame and guilt. And remember what we say a shame and guilt are. Guilt is what we have done. Uh, David is saying, I am an adulterer. I have committed adultery. That's guilt. Shame is the story it tells about you, who you are. The scarlet letter. It's not just what you do. But it's what you do tells about you. And we need the gospel of grace, this dance of grace, to cover both our guilt and shame. Shame tells a story about who we are as a result of what we have done. But the gospel is the news that Jesus blotted out what we have done. He has covered our sin. And he tells another story about you. You are my child. In whom I am forgiven. Many believe they can just outrun their past. The gospel is better news. You're just forgiven. This is why the gospel is better than we can imagine. Because the more we know about what we have done in life, the more we understand of the relationships that we have broken, the more that we realize the people that we love that we have hurt, we begin to understand what forgiveness is into the lengths that that forgiveness goes this is why the gospel is so good which brings us to this final step which is to follow look at verse 13 after he makes this great confession he says then i will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you deliver me from my guilt of bloodshed oh god and you Who are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Jack Miller used to say not only cheer up you're worse than than you think. Or cheer up the gospel is better than you imagine. But he would also say cheer up 
come and die. Jesus doesn't just ask us to repent of our sins or to believe the gospel of forgiveness. We don't follow him so that he will forgive. But because we are forgiven, we follow. Because our Savior died the death we should have died, lived the life we should have lived, because he has earned our forgiveness and reconciliation with God, we follow. That's why C.S. Lewis in one of his books will say, the whole life is one of doing further up and further in. What he's saying is what the psalmist is saying here, what David is telling us. And that is, it's an implication of the gospel that I believe, that I am washed clean, that my sin has been blotted out, and because of that, I'm going to tell everybody else about this gospel. If we truly believe it is good news that you have been saved, then how in the world can you sit and not tell someone else? It is like going to the best restaurant in town and keeping that a secret. It's, it's worse than that. Because it's words of life. Not just where the good food is. You and I, are, we're going to go through seasons of our life. And we're going to need different parts of this message of the dance. We're going to, some of us are so broken and so uh, messed up by our sin. That we're going to need a, a time where we are just bathed in the truth of the gospel that I am forgiven. That I am adopted into the family. That I am reconciled with God because I can't heal that. It's not my experience. And I need time. It's a lot like climbing into a hot tub. I know New York has no idea of, of what a hot tub is. But for the rest of the country, it's a place you go that is warm. And it heals. And that's the way the gospel works. It's bathing in the truth of what Christ has done for you over and over again. And it brings about healing. But if you stay in that hot tub forever, it will do the opposite. Because it is meant to propel you out of it and to follow Jesus into the world. And so in one sense, you and I following means following him into grace but it also means because of that grace is so true and so good and so beautiful is to follow him out of that into the world we need that this dance of grace you and I are not going to be perfect at we are going to trip over our feet in the beginning because I already told you repentance is not something we do naturally Believing the gospel doesn't come easy to us. Following is difficult. And so we're going to trip over our feet. But worse, we're actually going to step on the feet of others. But if we stay at it, if we continue to believe, continue to repent, continue to follow, over time that dance will become smoother and more beautiful to us and to everyone who watches us dance. You ever done that sometime? Go to a professional dancers and watch them dance. And you think, that looks so easy. They just make it look easy. But it is hundreds and thousands of hours of practice.
And that's the way the dance of grace is. It's hundreds and thousands of hours of truly repenting, truly believing, and truly following. Not perfectly. In fact, we will fall down and we'll need someone to pick us up. Maybe they're picking us up at the repentance uh, step and helping us through that process. Maybe it's in the believing because truly they're connected because you can't truly, fully, completely repent until you believe that you will be forgiven or are forgiven. And truly some of us will fail at believing because the gospel sounds too good to be true. And and what do people tell us when we hear something is too good to be true? Then it probably is too good to be true. And so we need somebody to remind us of the gospel. It is good. That's why they call it good news. That's what that word means, gospel. It's good news to be heralded. And so we're going to need someone to herald it to us. Martin Luther, at the very beginning of his little book on Galatians, they ask him, why do you preach the gospel every Sunday? He says, because my people forget it every Monday. (laughs) And we need people in our lives that will remind us and call us again to believe. And maybe even have to believe it for a time for us. Until we can believe it. And then a lot of us in here. We've had enough grace in our lives. We've had just enough grace. To soothe our aching guilt. But not enough to compel us to go. Not not enough to tell anybody else. What we believe. What we've experienced. What is beautiful. And the truth is, we've never repented in front of someone, so how in the world would they ever see us dance? Somehow we think that this is only for the church and inside these walls that we dance grace, but out there we return to the dance of performance. If we will take this dance of grace out into the world where we repent, where nobody repents, where we tell people the good news of the gospel of forgiveness, where we will tell people this truth, then they get to see the gospel at work in us. And hopefully they will tell us, tell me more. Please keep dancing. Because this is the essence of the Christian life. It's not about an ethical standard. It's, it's not primarily a, 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 about a set of beliefs, although they have those things. It's not primarily a set of experiences. It's about a dance, a beautiful dance that we do over and over and over again because then we are built up and encouraged. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that this is so beautiful that I wish I had heard this many years ago. But by your grace and your sovereignty, you waited a long time for me to hear this. And that's true for many in this room. Maybe there are some in this room that have heard this so many times, it's, oh, hum. I hate that anything that would be holy and beautiful like this would ever be whole hum to anyone. And others in the room, it's the very first time, and so it's going to take a while for the penny to drop to go all the way down into the heart to believe. And so I pray that you do that by the work of your spirit in our hearts for those of us who have been Christians for a while that we can help and mentor others in this beautiful dance be the the teachers as we display this dance ourselves we pray in Jesus name amen thanks for listening to our podcast 
We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.